All right, Forge family, let's begin. In our last time together, in the study of 1 Timothy, we looked at the first 11 verses of the greeting and Paul's introduction to some of the problems that Timothy would encounter as he pastors the churches of Ephesus. The false teachers that Paul referred to were presenting complex genealogies and family legends to members of the churches instead of continuing to help them in their walk of faith. Those genealogies and legends were part of Jewish pursuit of high stories and fables like those found in the Haggadah, which the rabbis had attached to the Torah. Further, some of the false teachers wanted to be known as teachers of the law of Moses. Paul goes out of his way to list some 13 plus sins that bend the men and women who were in need of the law to bring them under conviction. The genealogies and legends had blunted the convicting force and the condemning power of the law, resulting in its misuse and misunderstanding by the false teachers. Let's pray. Holy God, we are those who understand why the law was given so mankind could, un- could discover how sinful we are and how much we need your redemption. Thank you that the Apostle Paul set the stage for that redemption message to the Gentiles and, and their need of you. That's us, Lord. Thank you for your mercy that draws us to you and your grace that opens the door to salvation in Christ. Like Paul, we rejoice in you and your ways. Many today are set on dismantling, abridging, adding to, and subtracting from the scriptures. Today, Lord, we cling to you and your word in its entirety. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, turn with me to 1 Timothy, and we're going to start in verses 12 to 14. Paul is laying out his own story, knowing that Timothy needs the strength of testimony and experience that is beyond his years. Paul says this, I thank you, Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor, and yet... I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, unquote. So Paul wrote, to begin with, with his thanksgiving, but here he does it in a new manner. It is um, ongoing, continuous gratefulness for God's mercy. The ancient philosophers cut slack for those who acted in ignorance, But here, Paul knew that ignorance had no softening power with the law. Rather, his sins, his personal sins, he was one who blared abroad untruths about God as a blasphemer. He was one who hunted down the followers of Jesus. He was one who violently suppressed the belief in Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah. Uh, They were done in ignorance of God's outpouring of grace on mankind through Christ. Paul's pursuit and persecution of the followers of Jesus was entirely righteous before the law and the council of the elders in Jerusalem. 
It began at the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and 8. It was Saul of Tarsus who held the robes and the prayer shawls as some of those men took up stones and, and, and hurled them at Stephen. <clears throat> Saul felt that his response to this false Messiah was pure before the Lord God. When he encountered the living Christ on the Damascus Road, Saul of Tarsus realized he deserved condemnation before God. But instead, God reached out to Saul with mercy and grace. God's purpose was to save Saul to the utmost and place him in the service of the gospel to bring that message to the Gentiles. The statement that the grace of our Lord was more than abundant includes a hapax legomenon. Now that's, you know, that just says it's a one-off mention or, or one-time use of this word, okay? Paul regularly amplified Greek words to describe the supernatural strength and abundance of God's mercy and grace and peace. Seven times through his letters, this Greek prefix, huper, is added to show the overtop over-the-top miraculous effect of God's grace on Paul's life. It can be translated here as, quote, the grace of our Lord superabounded. It speaks of how deeply touched Paul was by God's mercy toward him. Remembering his sin was Paul's manner in which he kept laying aside any pride. Only grace and God's forgiveness keep pride where it belongs at the foot of the cross. William Barclay recounts this story. John Newton was one of the great preachers and supreme hymn writers of the church, but he had sunk to the lowest depths to which a man can sink in the days when he sailed the seas as part of a slave trading crew aboard a ship. So when he was a converted man and preacher of the gospel, he wrote a text in great huge letters and fastened it across the mantelpiece in his study where he could not fail to see it. Quote, Thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed thee. Unquote. He also composed his own epitaph. Quote, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had so long labored to destroy. John Newton never forgot that he was a forgiven sinner. Neither did Paul. Neither must we. It does a man good to remember his sins. It saves him from spiritual pride. Verses 15 and 16 continues Paul's counsel to Timothy. Quote, it is a trustworthy statement, deserving all, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. The three pastoral epistles contain five of these trustworthy statements written by Paul. Now, three decades have passed since the death of Christ. But Paul said that this statement here is unshakable truth. God sent his own son into the world to seek and to save the lost. Then Paul positions himself not as the worst sinner, 
but the Greek word protos speaks of being positioned at the head of the line, as in foremost sinner. Quote, and yet for this reason I found mercy in order that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Unquote. Paul repeats himself. He was saved by God's mercy and God's unlimited patience with him so that others might see Paul as an example of grace extended to one who was foremost of sinners. God, being merciful to Paul, gave hope to other notable sinners that there might be also a way to mercy. The new Gentile believers, like Paul, came to Christ from a background of egregious sin and extensive wickedness. But they shared the life-transforming power of Christ Jesus. Moral bankruptcy had been replaced by purity. Verse 17 is described as a doxology. Now, technically, that's a formula that's repeated in praise to God. But also, it's something that others might want to repeat, chant, sing, write out, and hold dear. Quote, now to the King Eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul had started with thanksgiving and is concluding with praise. Simply put, Paul is exalting the king of the ages from eternity past to eternity future, whose very person and nature will never degrade, never decay. This God, to be praised, is invisible, vastly unlike the array of gods and goddesses depicted in idols, carvings, weavings, smoke, you know, you know metal, metal castings, etc., this God is not corporeal. He has no physical body, but he is spirit. His person and nature can be clearly seen in the person and works of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Lastly, Paul presents the uniqueness of God, who is incomparable and glorious. To this God, Paul gives honor and reverence. Now, I, for one, am sure that this doxology dictated by Paul to be sent on to Timothy became a phrase included in worship from that point of history forward. The Eastern Church, to this day, stands on its feet to worship and sing it and chant aloud its historic liturgies, doctrines, and doxologies. Now comes a shift in the letter from Paul to Timothy. Verses 18 and 19 begins with, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with all the prophecies previously concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience. This charge to Timothy, whom Paul called his son. Now, it's his child in the faith, okay? Were, they were laid out in verses 3 to 11, which we studied last time. Remember the instructions from Paul regarding false teachers in the church? Okay? Paul reminds Timothy and then brings up the events of the past in which Timothy 
has received prophetic words as he grew up in Lystra, as he traveled with Paul, as he became Paul's envoy to other churches, etc. Paul wanted Timothy to be stirred up for those former prophet by those former prophecies so that he is strengthened to fight the good fight. Literally, Timothy is to campaign against false teachings. This is not a one-off battle or an event. Okay, it is a lifestyle. Okay, for the rest of his days, Timothy is to carry out a faithful campaign against that which detracts from the word of God and from the person of Jesus Christ. He's to fight that campaign with faith and good conscience. Set before him is a grueling spiritual battle, not a pleasant retreat to pastor the churches of Ephesus. And tradition says Timothy died as a martyr later in Ephesus. Now, you will note in the text that I broke verse 19 in the middle, for Paul was first focusing on Timothy and his preparedness to fight from the prophecies spoken over him with spiritual weapons. The second half of verse 19 and on into verse 20 says, and I'll pick it up in the middle, it says, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Unquote. Paul is intimately aware of the leaders, teachers, servants, deacons, and elders in the church. In Ephesus, the church had been there for 10 years. Okay? It had matured. It had spread out. There were multiple house churches in the, of the church of Ephesus. He writes to Timothy, stating that some from within the church have rejected, quote, faith and good conscience, unquote, and moving on from their faith to Christ al- in Christ alone to false teaching and practices and have suffered spiritual destruction. Paul pictures the fate of a ship that's torn apart by wind, waves, and rocks, leaving only bits of floating wreckage behind. His words, among these... He indicates that there were more spiritual casualties than just Hymenaeus and Alexander. Two is bad enough, but there were more. In the last half of verse 20, Paul states that he has turned these, including the two men mentioned, over to Satan. In 1 Corinthians 5.5, Paul wrote out his counsel to the churches in Corinth that the one who had been repetitively, unrepentantly, Committing incest is to be turned over to Satan. This can have multiple consequences. One might be that the very presence of Holy Spirit keeps Satan and his ilk from inflicting illness and loss and fear and terror and damage to to believers. When God the Spirit steps back, Satan is free to turn loose those attacks. Another possibility is The contrast between life in Christ in the fellowships of the churches versus life outside the churches, which is in the sphere of Satan's control. In both cases, Paul instructs that those individuals be removed from the fellowships, delivering them into Satan's realm where they would experience Satan's malice. But also, always, always, with the hope that there will be repentance and restoration. 
There in Ephesus, two men were singled out to be put out of the churches to learn not to blaspheme. Now, we are told nothing about what had taken place, only that the name, works, and reputation of God had been befouled by those two men. Their influence was judged and removed. All right, Forge, this week, think about the ways you've experienced the superabundant outpouring of God's grace that has answered your prayers, where you've seen family members healed, restored, and friends come into the kingdom. Verse 17's doxology is the appropriate response to those memories. Next, please stir up the prophecies over your own life and examine the edges of your faith and good conscience. Are they shiny, clean, sharp, ready for the campaign that lies ahead of you as you walk with the Lord? Lastly, we all know that those that there's some of those out there who have made shipwreck of their faith. Some started well, grew in influence, and then veered away to false teachings, to immorality or heretical beliefs. Take time this week to pray to the Lord regarding prodigals, fallen leaders, those who have seized upon progressive Christianity, etc. If the Lord puts them in your heart, that is your assignment. First Timothy 1.5 says, But the goal of our instruction is to love from a pure heart and good conscience and a sincere faith. Now let me add a word into that because I think it's also equally true. But the goal of our correction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Let's pray. God who equips us for the campaign. Thank you for the prophetic words of encouragement and correction. Thank you for urging us toward a faith that stands. We now pray for those who have risen to speak false things, turned away from Jesus, and intentionally left the sphere of the, sphere of the church to, to favor in favor of the realm of Satan. Lord, we would see them rescued and restored with a testimony in their mouths of the mercy and the grace of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Forge family, we'll see you soon. God bless you.